Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to take a look at system inequalities and how they permeate in the United States and in other areas of the world. My guest today is an expert on this topic. Professor Celine Marie Pascal is a sociologist and leading scholar in the field of language and society. Her research examines how language and representation are used to create and normalize systemic inequalities. Her new book, Living on the Edge, When Hard Times Become a Way of Life, draws upon interesting interviews with people from Appalachia, from American, Native American reservations, and inner city dwellers. Dr. Celine Marie Pascal, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you being with me today. Your, your topic of your book is fascinating and the content is even more fascinating, but let's jump right into it. Why did you decide to write a book on this particular topic and what is the main theme? I'm sure there are many sub themes or maybe several main themes, but what is, what is the main theme of this book? Bill, the book really began as an effort to try to understand the daily circumstances that people living in precarious economic situations face. But as my research unfolded, a bigger theme emerged. And as a result, the book not only showcases people's lives, it also shows the story of how workers across the country have been abandoned by their government and exploited by corporations. So that's really, um, I think those are the big focuses of the, of the book. And of course, our viewers can go to your website at www.cm pascal.org and we'll put that in the lower thirds now we're talking about the uh, basically interviews i guess were conducted in the united states but really these interviews could have been conducted can could have been conducted in brazil or perhaps in poland or in many other countries of the world this is not endemic only to the united states is that correct oh we have that right um i think that neoliberalism around the globe has consistently created enormous wealth for a very few at the expense of workers. And with that said, the US has the highest degree of income inequality among all of the de developed nations. It does. And years ago, we used to, we who were talking heads or, uh, or people who, uh, other people who knew a lot about the subject, used to say, well, we always look at South America. That was, there was more income inequality in South America than probably on any other continent. But today that has changed, has changed quite dramatically. I guess, is the United States one of the foremost countries now as far as income inequality? Yes, it is, sadly. Yeah, it, it's really tragic. It certainly is. Well, let's talk about uh, folks who, we'll talk about uh, socioeconomic classes, I guess. Uh, it seems that so often you hear people, uh, it strikes me that it doesn't matter if someone's wealthy or if they have a meager income, people so often describe themselves as middle class. How, how can we all be middle class if we have such income inequality and also other inequalities too? Well, um, how we think about ourselves, how we name ourselves is we learn that, right? So if you believe in the American dream, if you believe that everybody who works hard has an equal shot at great success, then the only way to explain people who are struggling 
is to blame them. They didn't work hard enough. They weren't smart enough. There's some failing on their part. And so very few people will ever say, oh yeah, I'm poor because who wants that, right? And there's a lot of shame involved in it. But when you actually stop to look at to see how the system is rigged, then you'll find people, um, the people that I interviewed never described themselves as being poor, even when they didn't have enough to eat, but they did describe themselves as belonging to the struggling class. I struggle. They hadn't given up, but they weren't making it. You mentioned the American dream, and that's something that's been used probably millions, if not billions of times by uh, authors and other folks like that. And it is, it's an embedded part in the culture of the United States. Many years ago, it seems like it was a lot easier to achieve it. Uh, so often you could do it with one income earner in the family. You had a situation where oh, uh, school was not as expensive as it is today. Childcare wasn't as expensive. Is the American dream pretty much a myth today or is it still there? Um, I think it's absolutely a myth today. If you define, if the American dream is that, you know, you work hard, you can succeed. I've met too many really good people who work more than 60 hours a week and aren't succeeding. It's really um, part of a, a mythology. And I think that the American dream has never existed for everyone in this country. It's part of the, uh, a lot of class myths that we hold. Yeah. That, that seems to be very much the, uh, what is occurring today. Now, as we look at people who are in certain uh, socioeconomic levels or certain socioeconomic stasis or people who are living in poverty, are we using the right measures to determine if somebody is in poverty? Are, we, are there other ways to check self-sufficiency or to determine how well off a person is doing or how well off a person maybe is not doing? That's such a thoughtful question. Um, the federal measure of poverty was developed in the 1960s and it's based on what the federal government calls a minimum food diet. So the government assumes that the cost of this minimum food diet is about one third of the total family budget for a month. So whatever the cost of that food is, they multiply it by three and there's your poverty line. Boy, that is not the beginning of poverty for anyone. In the book, in Living on the Edge, I contrast this poverty line with a self-sufficiency budget. Um, it's an analysis that looks at how much it actually costs to live. So food, housing, childcare, healthcare, transportation, taxes, and other necessities. And it also varies by region. The Economic Policy Institute's a nonpartisan think tank that created this. And it's really a wonderful way of getting a clear sense of how much families need to earn in order to pay basic bills with confidence. That seems like it would be a much more accurate barometer of a person or a family's income and how well off they are. Did you look at the gross domestic product? Uh, this may, may or may not have played into, into your book, but so many economists today are saying, instead of just looking at the GDP, of a country, we need to look at the overall wellness or fitness or healthiness, if you will, of a country. Look at how much damage is being done through the use of fossil fuels, through coal, oil, gas, through other activities 
that are unhealthy for people, uh, how areas are being raised, forests are being destroyed. But did you look at the GDP or was that uh, maybe for economists in another field? Well, you know, I think sociologists use that as well. It's not at all unusual. Um, when I went into the field to do this research, I took a slightly different approach and I was interested in people's lives. What, what's the day to day? And when someone said to me, oh, I have a toothache, but um, I'm gonna have to take out a medical loan in order to pay for that, um, I researched medical loans. So there was a woman in Southeast Ohio who ended up putting off her small toothache until she ended up with a, an infected jaw. And it became a big problem to solve. That sort of thing was very common. So I researched around that. Uh, what's the cost of a loan? What's the cost of housing? What's the cost of food? So that I could get a sense, a better sense of the environments in which they were living. Now we're gradually, <laughs> and the optimal word in this sense is gradually coming out of the, hopefully, maybe that may be the optimal word, coming out of this COVID pandemic how has this pandemic, I mean, it's affected everyone. I don't think anybody on the planet's probably been unaffected by COVID, but how has this adversely affected people, especially people who were in this, we'll, we'll say the middle socioeconomic or lower socioeconomic groups and affected their lifestyle and their ability to cope as far as with their jobs or with health items or whatever? Well, people who were living largely without health care because they low wage work tends to restrict the number of hours you can work any week so that they don't the employers don't have to pay for benefits. So you have a lot of workers who don't have any benefits and now they're being called in to work in situations that are unsafe or not work at all because you can't really do low wage work online. It's something that happens in person, whether it's working at a meatpacking plant or a grocery store, it requires being present. And for some people who had professional level jobs that were still not enough to support a family on, uh, some of those people ended up collecting cans, trying to make bills, going to uh, food um, Food, food lines, I'm sorry, my mind just left there for a moment, um, trying to find ways to make ends meet. Most of them ran up credit card debt. Um, some of them really worried about their ability to stay in their homes. And these people during the pandemic and even before really and after are really indispensable in our society. They're absolutely crucial players and we certainly need to treat them as such. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or a podcast, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you just have a computer, you like our shows and you want to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're talking about 
systemic problems. And my guest is an expert in this, on this topic, Dr. Celine Marie Pascal, a professor of sociology at American University in Washington, DC, recently wrote, living on the edge when hard times become a way of life. We were talking about workers who are, are essential. This it seems to me like there are many heroes during this COVID-19 problem, but they, these people are absolutely crucial. They are just so valuable to us. But again, what can we do? What are three or four suggestions that we can do to help improve their status and to show them more appreciation, obviously, than what we've done in the, in the past? Do we need uh, guaranteed annual income, national health insurance, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, Medicare for all? What, what would you recommend to help improve their status? I think one of the um, root causes of the difficulties that we've seen among struggling families, both before and during the pandemic, is a government that doesn't respond to their needs. So we have um, systemic poverty and high interest rates. We have um, overpriced foods. We have lots of troubles that make it hard for people to get from one end of the day to the next without tremendous stress. So part of the problem is not a Democrat or Republican administration, but the fact that governments really abandoned working people entirely. So I would suggest getting big money out of elections by making them publicly funded to find ways to, we need a democracy. We need one person, one vote, the end of the electoral college, eradication of gerrymandering, all of that would become a very good start to making sure that the people who working people have a government with their interests in mind and not the interests of big money. Too many people have been forced to work in unsafe circumstances because it really benefited the corporation and have been treated as disposable. And, and of course, uh, corporations, small businesses, everybody who are job creators are important, but corporations seem to have a disproportionate influence in our society, especially if you look at how their money so often influences basically politicians, members of the United States Congress, Senate and the House. And that is very detrimental to our society, especially with the dark money that's flowing into it. Do we, do we have in this country kind of a pay for play type of situation where, you know, you? the person who pays the most gets the best votes in Congress and that type of thing? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that turned up in the book was the way that um, the DEA was actually prevented from being able to enforce um, drug trafficking uh, legislation because of pharmaceutical companies that were supporting uh, Legis Congress people who blocked their efforts, actually blocked the DEA from intervening in the opioid crisis. So that's one example of many. We People in Congress tend to be incredibly wealthy and they're wealthy because they are well-funded by uh, donors and by special interest groups. It's been interesting and somewhat comical to be quite honest to, 
not, not in a funny way, but in a, a tragic, a tragic comedy way, to listen to all this nonsensical talk about socialism and communism. The only, as, as someone who's looked at this issue for the past several decades, the only, the only socialism I see in this country really is corporate socialism. And that's where the large corporations actually determine and control the government to a large degree. And we've seen it through uh, banking bailouts. We've seen it through housing bailouts. We've seen it through large corporations cornering the market to make sure that nobody else can get into that market. There's a collusion so often between, well, you look at the uh, military industrial complex. I mean, if you ever talk about a collusion between the, the military industrial complex and the Pentagon and the members of Congress, that is certainly it. But have you, is that a false statement on my part or is there any validity to that? Um, well, certainly research bears you out. I think it's a very insightful analysis. Many low wage workers live in what we call, or what they call sacrifice zones, communities that are highly polluted and really vulnerable to the devastation of the climate crisis. And it's not anything new. It's because we haven't addressed a corrupt political system that gives away to falsified studies that have been done by petroleum companies and supports inaction in order to appease their funders. We can't really think about addressing the needs of uh, working people or the climate crisis in any effective way, unless we really address what's happening with our government. And the place to start is on Capitol Hill or should we have a better informed public? Can the media play a role in this in helping to inform the public? Because so often, I mean, we see actually some media stations are actually detrimental to people understanding issues. We, some of them are just totally counterproductive. They put out misinformation disinformation almost 24 seven, but do we need to beef up our, our educational system or what, what can we do to, to help inform people so better decisions can be made? Well, media is a big part of it, Bill. I think we really have to have um, a clear and free media, but fundamentally we are so far away from a representational democracy one person, one vote. If we did that and eliminated the electoral college, made elections publicly funded, we would not only get big money out of elections, but we'd also enable more political parties to emerge. So I think it's pretty, the kinds of problems that we are facing aren't by accident, they're by design. The system has been created to create in a way that creates this kind of poverty. The biggest corporations, the largest employers among service industry work, pay their employees so little that they actually qualify for and need food stamps. So the government ends up subsidizing, it's kind of a bailout for um, profit, for companies making this huge profit while we're paying for food stamps for workers who are being paid so little. It, it certainly is. It's a major problem, and we've got to get this dark money out. And I hear people say, well, I don't want my taxpayer money going to fund a candidate. But what so many people do not realize is that through these really rigged pieces of legislation that are slanted to help put money into rich people's pockets, 
and to take it out of our pockets, to be quite honest, they're actually paying in the long run. It would be much cheaper to put up a small amount of money to support candidates and just indicate to them that they cannot get any other funds. They can get volunteers to work with them or whatever, something like that. But they're, we're going to pay in the long run. And we just look at our healthcare industry and how overpriced it is. We look at our Defense Department budget, and we know for a fact that 25 cents on every dollar in the Defense Department budget is wasted. We could be putting that money into some other entity. But in the last, I hate to, we're just about out of time. There's so many more questions I have. But you really conducted some very interesting interviews in Oakland, California, and Appalachia on Native American reservations. Is there one, I'm sure there are many, but is there one that will stay with you, one story that you heard that really will be your guiding light in the future? Um, I think that um, in every region, there was someone who stood out for me as really embodying a kind of vision and compassion that was so moving. And there was one woman who um, was doing everything that was utterly imaginable to create um, places where children could go after school, where they would have enough food, was the best kind of community member that anyone could ever ask for. And still, a couple of houses down from her was facing um, a meth lab that exploded and set the neighborhood on fire. So um, people are doing extraordinary work in very, very difficult circumstances. And I think that uh, throughout Appalachia, throughout Standing Rock, Wind River, and Oakland, um, people found ways to help themselves and help each other, knowing that things were really um, unfair and not going to get better for them. And that's exactly what we need to keep in mind that the society can progress only when the vast majority of the people in the society move forward and that they are moving upward and that we're not trotting on people and taking advantage of them or paying them super low wages or having a race to the bottom to see who can do the most work for the smallest amount of money. That's not a winning formula for any society. And apparently there are some people in this country who, and powerful people who believe that that's the way to go at it. But as you've indicated quite vividly today, that certainly is not the way. But Dr. Celine Marie Pascal, I want to thank you so very much and to congratulate you on your new book. It's a very interesting read and one that will be of interest to many of our viewers, I'm sure. But I wanna thank you so much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you very much, Bill. It's been a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television. Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.